We on? Oh, there we go. We have not forgotten anything. The offertory this week is purposely placed after the message. Um, the special music this morning will actually be the, our text. And so I thought it might be um, more significant after we've taken a look at it than before. So um, never fear. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 73. Last week, we finished our series through the doctrine of the scriptures, the authority of the Bible. And now we find ourselves back in the Psalms. Now we are starting the third book of the Psalms. Um, by way of reminder, whoever compiled the Psalms, probably some post-exilic um, scribe, arranged them in five books. And there's actual text evidence within the book of Psalms for the divisions. There's this coda for all the Psalms and books, this double amen and amen formula. So it's not arbitrary. And the books seem to model themselves after Israel's history and dynasty. They start with the first two books of David, um, largely Davidic authorship. Book three begins with 11 psalms by Asaph. Asaph was a choir master um, mentioned in First Chronicles. The theme of the third book of the psalms appears to be the decline of the monarchy, the decline of the Davidic monarchy. Uh, in fact, at the end, closing out the third book, and we'll be there in a few weeks, is a psalm really crying out about the failure of the Davidic covenant and dynasty. The failure, apparently, of God to keep his promises. And the psalmist in Psalm 89 says, here's what you promised, and here's what's happening. And he just doesn't know how to resolve the two. And so, Psalm 73 is another sort of dealing, wrestling with doubts and discouragement. It's actually probably one of the best treatments in the Bible on the confusion over there's a good and sovereign God who rules the universe, who loves his people, who promises good for them, and yet the apparent success of the wicked and next to the uh, trials and tribulations of the righteous. If you've ever struggled with why is it that so many wicked people in the world are prospering, are are seeming to live easy lives while we seem to have it tough, you're in good company. And this gets dealt with in Job, it gets dealt with in Habakkuk, but here, I think just very plainly, very honestly, Asaph recounts his own struggle with this. And again, remember the Psalms are spirit-filled men and women talking to God. So in that, we learn how God would have us wrestle through that. It's almost like a road map, if you will. How would God have me? How would God have you wrestle with discouragement and doubts over the success of the wicked? Well, Psalm 73 shows us how. Asaph is very blunt. He's very honest. And for that, I am truly thankful. Let's read Psalm 73, and then we'll work our way through it. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. 
They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought to how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself. You despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So it's a bit of a longer psalm, and yet I think it's important to deal with the whole psalm in its entirety to get the sort of the narrative flow. Structurally, um, the psalm opens and closes with this but as for me. You see that in verse 2, and then you see that again in verse 28. And that really is the narrative arc for Asaph. He's going to begin, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And through the course of this psalm and his prayer and his reasoning, he ends up, as for me, it is good to be near God. Now, God is good on both ends of this. Truly, God is good to Israel. There's no, there's no development of God. It's Asaph's movement. It's his development of his heart and his thoughts. God doesn't change we do, even if it looks sometimes like he does change. And so we're going to go through this psalm in, in, into three sections, trying to track Asaph's dealing with this and seeing how we can learn to fight by faith well as we look around us. So our first point, Asaph's descent into envy and doubt. Asaph's descent into envy and doubt. And whereas the first 15 verses are dominated with Asaph's complaint, his lament, his frustration over the success of the wicked, at the time of his writing this psalm, he's, he's come through it. And so almost as if to let us know what you're about to hear isn't the whole story, he sort of introduces and gives an overview of the whole psalm in the first three verses. In case anyone's confused about what he's about to say, diving in, truly, God is good to Israel. You need to know that up front. Even though over the next 15 verses, Asaph is saying, I'm going to lay out some complaint and some confusion. Understand going in, God's good. God is good. He's good to those who are pure in heart. In fact, what you're about to read is, he says in verse 2, As for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my feet had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. 
when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So Asaph sets it up. Know this going in. God's good. That's not, that's not in question. In fact, what you're about to see is my thought process, Asaph says, as I nearly slipped, as I nearly lost my faith, as I nearly stumbled over my envy of the wicked. That, that's what we're about to see. So that's the overview. So the psalm isn't really asking the question, is God good? He tells us up front, no, God is good. But let me tell you about a time when I doubted that. Let me tell you about a time when my feet nearly slipped. And let me tell you about how the Lord preserved me, how the good shepherd shepherded my heart and my faith. That's, that's what we're about to see. And so then, starting in verse 4, he unpacks the evidence in support of his complaint. And this part of the psalm takes on sort of a classic lament style, sort of pouring out reason after reason after reason why he doesn't like the way things are going, why he's confused and vexed and discouraged. Um, and he's really got seven reasons why he's unhappy about the prosperity of the wicked. First, the wicked appear to be healthy and prosperous. They have no pangs until death, he writes. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They're, they're healthy, they're prosperous, and they're unafflicted, and they, they're apparently at ease and at peace. Um, now, the wicked here, don't, don't think of just people with sort of curly mustaches, you know, and top hats. The wicked are just the ungodly, those who don't love and worship God. Um, our, our culture is a celebrity-driven culture. There's no shortage of ungodly people who appear to be living happy, pleasant lives. Um, you can see them on the covers of the magazines at the checkout line of the newspaper. This could just as easily be the family across the street who doesn't worship and love God. And, and, and you're struggling trying to hold your family together, make ends meet, and they're just seeming everything's going fine for them. And you're wondering, if I know the living God... If I worship and serve the living God, why is it so hard for me and so easy for them? So don't just think of the wicked as the sort of, you know, villainous laugh wicked. This is just the ungodly. This is anyone who's worshiping something other than God. And it's true. The, the psalmist doesn't pretend. This, this is sort of a, a shot at the prosperity gospel. There are those today who will teach that if you are a Christian, in fact, God does promise you wealth and health and prosperity. Um, th that is not the case. Not in this life, at least. And Psalm 73 is a marked um, example of that. Here is a righteous man who has kept his heart pure, who is innocent of the blood of others, and he's not healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. And God does not promise that for us either. Thirdly, not only are they healthy and prosperous, unafflicted and at peace. Because of this, they're very proud. And he says, verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. So they're, they're proud of themselves. They're self-made. They're, they're, they're flaunting their wealth, their success. And this leads to abuse. Um, violence covers them as a garment. If you're in a position of power where you're able to flex your muscles financially, sometimes people do. And this then leads to um, verse 7. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. There's foolishness. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. I think that's a very picturesque statement. Their tongue struts through the earth. These people are braggarts. They're proud of themselves. 
and their tongue is either used to utter threats or to simply pat themselves on the back. And you can picture Asaph's frustration. Here he is, an Israelite, being faithful to God. And all around him are either unfaithful Israelites or pagans who are, you know, they're, they're seeming to be getting away with it. I, I, I know um, my brother-in-law was frustrated. He worked as a plumber and he was trying to do a good job and work diligently. And around him are all these union employees who are cutting corners and rewarded for it. And if anything, they're frustrated with his diligence because it made them look bad. And I remember him being frustrated. You know, why am I getting the short end of the stick when all these, you know, People cutting corners are getting promoted and advanced. It can happen in the workplace. Maybe, maybe you're frustrated with the, with the political climate, the economic climate, as apparently wicked people are, are, are prospering. This can be in any, in any sphere. This applies. And I think it's something we all can relate to at one time or another. Being confused, frustrated, envious, discouraged of why these other people who don't know our God, these other people who don't worship our God, who scoff at God, why they seem to have it so easy and we seem to have it so hard at times. And because of this, because of their wealth and their prosperity and their, their bragging, people surround them and applaud them. And again, there's no shortage of magazines at the checkout counter of the supermarket there precisely because we as a populace worship celebrity. Man, there, there are people today who seriously are just famous for being famous, as far as I can tell. Um, that's, that's, what are they famous for? They're famous for being famous. They had a reality show or something, and they're famous for being famous. And our culture eats it up. It says in verse 10, Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. So what makes it even worse, not only is people, you know, ungodly, but the rest of the culture, rather than seeing that, applauds them for it. It says, good job. And finally, this ultimately leads to the worst part, the, the denial of God, the mocking of God, the, the belief, I can get away with doing what I want, where they say, verse 11, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. And so Asaph's being really honest, and, and maybe not everyone you're thinking of meets all these criteria, but this is kind of a, an outline, a sketch of what is out in the world. And again, I appreciate the Bible's realness, Asaph's honesty. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't try to dress this up in self-righteous clothes. He admits, I was envious. You know, he, he could have said, I was grieved at heart that God wasn't being honored. But the reality was he was envious. And yes, we can, like Jesus, be filled with a righteous zeal when he cleared the temple. But more often than not, we're in the case of Asaph. We're just, yeah, I want what they want, what they have. I, I wish I could have their lot in life. And this then really brings Asaph to the greatest temptation he's facing in his trial. The temptation to throw it all in. We'll see that he recounts that even this thinking, he, he sinned. We'll, we'll get to that. But the real danger of his foot slipping is him being tempted to throw in the towel to quit. I mean, really, he gets up to the line where he says to himself, if this is what serving Yahweh, the living God, gets me, and those, those idolaters and pagans get all these blessings and all this applause and all this ease, then maybe I should just cast my lot with them. We see that next in um, almost reaching the wrong conclusion. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence, 
For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Now notice that. He's, he's really right at the edge here of apostasy. This, what's, what's the use? What's the use of being a Christian? What's the use of being faithful? What's the point? It just seems like the more faithful I am, the harder things go for me. And, and the more unfaithful they are, the better things go for them. Maybe I should just give it up and go join them. And again, notice the realism of the Bible. The Bible recognizes our struggles. A spirit-filled, godly person can wrestle with these thoughts. But they need to come out the other side as Asaph does. In fact, the, the first thing that holds him back is his commitment to the people of God. Verse 15, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Which is to say, he, he has enough sense as he's standing at that, that tipping point. If, if I go there, if I, if I abandon my faith, it will, it will severely damage those around me. And so his love for the people of God initially holds him back. He knows if I, if I put words to what I'm thinking, if I were to speak this publicly, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. There's another reason why we need each other. You know, if Asaph were all by himself without a community of faith, he may well have gone over the edge. But one of the graces that God used to hold him back, to restrain his unbelief, was his love and commitment to the people of God. And, and so... He said, but when I thought to understand this, it was a wearisome task. Which brings us now to Asaph's change of perspective, point two. Asaph's change of perspective. So, so we've come all the way down, 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 to the very edge of despair and apostasy. I was about ready to throw in the towel. I knew, if, I, knew I can't go there. I can't do that. I betray God's people. <laughs> And now, at this turning point in verses 16 to 17, he's going to have a perspective shift and come out the other side. And that's, that's what we want to pay attention to. How do you go from almost being ready to throw in the towel, to give up your faith, to walk away from the Lord? How do you go from that to some of the most exalted praise? This psalm ends with some of the most beautiful and exalted praise in Scripture. How do you go from all in vain, I've kept my hands clean to that. Well, we're going to try to find out. And, it, and the turning point here is in Asaph's change of perspective. And he confesses his difficulty in understanding on his own. It's as though he can thought enters his mind to walk away from his faith, to throw in the towel. He says, okay, I know that can't be the right answer. That would do too much harm to God's people. That's not the right answer. But he, but he confesses in verse 16, that when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a worrisome task. I, I don't know how to work through this. I know the right answer can't be give up, walk away. But I don't know what the right answer is. Until, he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. And notice this, drawing near to God and God's people brought understanding to Asaph. So often when we're discouraged, when we are depressed, the temptation is to move away from God's people, to move away from corporate worship. And that's precisely what we need. Asaph says, I didn't know how to work through this until I drew near to God in his sanctuary, till I drew near to God's people. And then he says, I, I understood their end. And, and that's the turning point. It's a perspective shift. And so now we'll look at Asaph's ascent to repentance, praise, and worship. Asaph's ascent to repentance, praise, and worship. And so as he draws near to God, 
what Asaph starts to do is develop a long view of human history. What he realizes is that he's only been looking at part of the story. If, if all you're looking at is how things play out on earth, then you will conclude there is no justice in the universe. If, if all there is is life under the sun, as the author of Ecclesiastes would put it, then there is no permanent and final justice. But when we factor in eternity and the afterlife and God's judgment, that's when the scales start to balance. And so Asaph looks at the afterwards of the wicked. And the reason why I put that word afterwards in quotation marks is it's the exact same word translated down in verse 24 as afterwards. It's what it means. And so the answer are these two afterwards. There's the afterwards of the wicked translated in the ESV as I discerned their end or I discerned there afterwards. And then there's the contrasting afterwards of the righteous. The way that this problem gets solved is by looking at the final destination of these two paths, of, of wickedness and righteousness, of faith and unbelief. The, the equation does not get solved in this life. In this life, there will be injustice. In this life, there will be the wicked who prosper. And in this life, don't appear to be punished. In this life, that will happen. But if you get a longer view, an eternal view, then the equation is solvable. And that's the paradigm shift that Asaph needed to take. He was looking at things as a functional atheist. He was only looking at things in this life now. And in this life now, the scales weren't balancing. In this life now, God seemed to be off the mark. And then when he starts to look at the long view, it makes sense. He looks at the afterwards of the wicked and in verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they're destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. You know, most people don't plan on dying. Most people it just sort of comes up by surprise. And despite how powerful these people are and popular, how much money they have, they can't escape death. And when they die, they're swept away in fact, he goes on to say, like a dream when one awakes the Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. See, the, the real irony is, in light of eternity, these people who are so big and so powerful, who strut their stuff, when, when you're dreaming, the dream seems real. You know, the scary thing in the dream scares you, but when you wake up, it, it's like a vapor that vanishes. And he says, that's what these wicked are like. They may seem really big and tough stuff now, but when they stand before God, that they'll be as real and as significant and as effectual as a dream, as a vapor next to God. Which then leads him to his confession of repentance. As he, as he realizes how, no, God will judge the earth in righteousness. God will repay each according to their works. God will judge the wicked. He realizes how wrong his own grumbling and discouragement and self-pity was. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. He says, the danger of just living off of our feelings. The reason he equates himself to an animal is animals don't have reason and so it appears that an animal's hungry, even wants the food. An animal, you know, just sort of operates by instinct, by gut feeling, and that's what he was doing. He wasn't thinking through this. He wasn't applying wisdom to a situation. His, his feelings were down. He was discouraged, and he just went with them. And he realizes how not right that was, how faithless that was. 
And so he confesses that to God. He says, Lord, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. And then he, he turns his attention then to the present and afterwards blessings found in the Lord. And what's, what's truly amazing and beautiful is despite the fact that Asaph admits, I was being unfaithful to God. I was no better than a brute beast towards God as I was mad and confused and doubting him. But nevertheless, God didn't leave him. Isn't that good news that despite our sinfulness, despite our doubt and unbelief, the Lord remains faithful? Asaph was faithless. The Lord remained faithful. God didn't abandon him. Nevertheless, he says, I am continually with you. You hold me with your right hand. And so what Asaph is now turning his attention to is the present and future blessings of peace with God. The present and future blessings of peace with God, which, which include here ongoing fellowship with God. He says, I am, you are still with me. And that also is guidance and protection. His, he says that your right hand holds me up and you guide me with your counsel. God's given us his word. I mean, if, if you're wondering about why the balances are so out, not only is there the eternal reckoning that balances the scales, but even now, only those who are trusting in Christ by faith have peace with God. Only those who are united by faith to Christ have God's counsel, his presence, his fellowship. And he starts to rehearse these things. And not only that, he says, you guide me through counsel and afterwards you'll receive me to glory. We've just seen that the, the wicked get swept away as a dream when one awakes, suddenly, to judgment and terror. And yet the afterwards of the righteous, the godly, it's glory. We get to behold the glory of Christ, the glory of God. And this leads then to just some exalted worship. And, and as his heart is changing, notice this. After considering the, the benefits he has of, of union with God now, and the benefits he has coming, his desires have changed. Whereas he used to be envious. Remember, that was the sin he confessed. I was envious of the wicked. Now, he has no envy because he's satisfied whom have I in heaven but you and there is nothing on earth I desire besides you now that's really the secret right there the secret of how to deal with discouragement is, is finding satisfaction in God Asaph's circumstances have not changed one iota but his perspective has he, he had forgotten about the blessings of knowing the living God he had forgotten about God's counsel and he'd forgotten about the eternal glory that he was going to. And as he thinks about those things, his heart wells up with praise. And he says, if I have God, I've got everything I need. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, they may fail. But God is the strength of my heart. And so even if outwardly, he says, I'm perishing and suffering and sick. Inwardly, as Paul says, we're being renewed day by day. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. This then is the final contrast of the fate of the wicked and the righteous. He says, Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. Then may tell of your works. And so there are those who are far from God and perish and those who are near to God. And he says, the nearness of God, God's nearness to me, my fellowship with God, that is my one true good. It is good to be near to God. I've made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of your works. And one of the ways he's telling of God's works is in writing this psalm. 
So just sort of to review before we draw a couple application points. Asaph recounts how he nearly abandoned the faith. Now for a time in unbelief and discouragement, he was like a beast towards God. He draws near to God's people, to God's sanctuary, and he gets insight. And he sees the two very distinct end results. And then he begins to meditate on his present fellowship and possession of God. And his heart starts to overflow with praise and joy until he can say, no longer am I envious, but I'm fully satisfied. (laughs) The nearness of God is my good. I mean, that's a radical change. It's a radical arc. And so I just want to draw our attention to five points practically then to help us put um, shoe leather on this of how to to fight discouragement as we encounter it. That's Asaph's story. So as we appropriate this for ourselves, five points, and we'll move quickly here. The first is we've got to learn to be honest with God about our doubts. We've got to learn to be honest with God about our doubts. I, I really just love the plain, simple, honest language of Asaph. He doesn't try to dress this up in super spiritual terms. You know, like I said earlier, I think some of us might be tempted to say, it's not that I envy the wicked, it's really just that I'm grieved that Christ is not honored. And that may be true for some, but again, I think for the vast majority of us, more honesty would simply say, I wish I could swap their lot with my lot. I wish I could have their paycheck and they could have mine. I I wish I could have their, you know, friends their applause instead of what I have. And so Asaph is very honest. He's very honest. We need to be honest. Put into words what our discouragement is. One of the first things I do oftentimes in counseling those who are discouraged is try to get them to write out, put into words what their discouragement is. Because sometimes you just have the feeling of discouragement. And it's really helpful to search your heart. Okay, what is it explicitly that is discouraging me? And Asaph does that. He makes his catalog. He makes his list. Okay, this is what's bothering me. This is what is causing me to doubt. This is what I'm wrestling with. This is what I'm thinking. He's being honest with God about his doubts. You know, you're not going to fool God. If you're, if you're doubting, if you're struggling, he knows. And he's still going to be faithful, just like he was to Asaph. And he wants you to speak honestly to him and not to fool yourself. And not to put on a mask and pretend everything's just fine and praise God when really it's not. Secondly, and this is really important, t- turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3 to sort of back this point up. But secondly, discontentment is not caused by circumstance. Discontentment is not caused by circumstance. And this is, this is important. What of Asaph's circumstances have changed from the beginning of this psalm to the end of this psalm? The answer, absolutely nothing, right? Nothing has changed out there. The change in Psalm 73 was with the man, with his mind, with his heart, with his desires. And it's so easy for us to think that our discouragement and our discontent is a result of circumstances. And so we say things to ourselves like, if I only could have a bigger paycheck, if I could only live in that house, drive that car, if I only had a boyfriend or a girlfriend, if I only had, if I only, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be content. And it's a lie. It's not true. I mean, just stop and think about the the number of absolutely miserable, rich and, and, and powerful people there are in the world. 
And we all know and can think of joyful, happy people who have very simple means. It's a lie. We tell ourselves that to excuse our discontent, to excuse our grumbling. It's not my fault. It's just that if I only had this thing that I want, then I'd be okay. So it's really not my fault. It's, it's circumstances' fault. The writer of Hebrews makes this point emphatically in Hebrews 3. Picking it up in verse 16, he's turning his attention to the generation of Israelites who left Egypt, who perished in the wilderness. And he makes a very interesting point here. Who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So I'm just going to pause there. What was the primary sin of the Israelites in the wilderness? It was grumbling, right? Grumbling. Why did the Lord lead us out here? It would be better for us to be slaves back in Egypt. Oh, this manna, we're so sick and tired of manna. Grumble, 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 right? Now look at verse 19 here. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. See, the writer of Hebrews takes all of their provoking God and all of their grumbling and all of their backbiting and all of their complaining as unbelief. It makes sense, right? I mean, if they really believed who God was and he said he's bringing them to a land, if they really had faith, would they have been grumbling? No, of course not. And this is, again, is another one of those reasons why I try to so often teach that sin is really just lived out unbelief, just as obedience is the fruit of faith, that what we believe or don't believe produces our actions. And here, the writer of Hebrews takes all this grumbling and all this complaining and he calls it unbelief. And the temptation for us is to think, no, 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 I'm only, I'm only grumbling because I have it bad. Because I, you know, I've been treated unfairly. And to that, we simply need to look no further than the Lord Jesus Christ. No one was treated worse than him. No one deserved more honor, more glory. No one had more claim for joy, for applause. And no one was more greatly mistreated. And yet, he was, despite the fact that he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, he was full of joy. His faith in God did not waver, and he went to the cross. And he left us, according to 1 Peter 3, a pattern to model our lives after. No, discontentment is not caused by circumstances. And we need to remind ourselves of that and remind each other of that. When you're talking to someone and they're pouring out their heart, and it's good to pour out your heart, um, but when someone starts to argue, it's really all these things that are going on, you, we need to gently say, no, no. I know that circumstances can shake up our heart, provoke our heart so that what's inside comes out, but when the discontentment, when the grumbling comes out, it's really the overflow of the heart. It's kind of like if you have a two-liter bottle of Coke and you take the lid off, and circumstances can shake up that bottle, right? But what comes out of the bottle, what was always in there? Um, you know, a weak faith... It isn't tested, may appear to be strong. And then trials and tribulations come. The bottle gets shaken. What comes out is grumbling, discontent. And Asaph is well aware that the problem he had was not his circumstances. He lost sight of God. He lost sight of the blessings he had in God. He lost sight of his fellowship. And he was really consumed with envy because he was just looking at the stuff and the applause and the ease. And so he, his faith had slipped 
and he confesses that. Three, draw near and not away to God in times of doubt. And you can put next to that also his people. Um, it's not entirely clear what he means by drawing near to God's sanctuary. Some of the commentators suggest it's God's presence or it reflects God's point of view. Others emphasize God's people. I kind of think it's all of it. If you're an Israelite and you're going near to the tent of meeting because there is no temple yet, you go to God's sanctuary, you're drawing near to all those things. You're drawing near to the Lord himself, his Shekinah glory resting over the Ark of the Covenant. But there's going to be tons of priests and Levites there operating and serving. There'll be worshipers. You're drawing near the community. You're drawing near God. It's the whole package. And like I said, so often when we're discouraged, the temptation is to retreat, to, to go in the corner, lick our wounds. That's the last thing we need to do. If you or someone you know or love is, is dealing with discouragement, get them in fellowship. Get them to be with God's people. It's the best thing for them. Asaph says, I couldn't understand this. I couldn't think my way through this until I drew near to God. And, and if he can't work his way through this, we shouldn't think we can figure it out on our own. Third, remember to keep eternity in view. Remember to keep eternity in view. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4. And this is really probably the biggest key of this passage is being able to keep an eternal mindset. To keep eternity in view. The temptation for each and every one of us is to forget about the spiritual world, to forget about judgment, to forget about eternity, and just look at life like everyone else does, the here and now. And that will warp your perspective. I've said this before, it's kind of like when you're driving down the highway and the heat's coming off the road and the things in the distance appear warped, appear twisted, out of focus. Well, in the same way, when we got the circumstances of this life, the here and now, right in front of our eyes, and way back in the distance somewhere, there's God and there's eternity, it's going to warp our perspective. And so Asaph's paradigm shift is to start with God, to start with eternity, and then work his way back to the present. And so we need to keep eternity in view. Paul, writing in the same vein, says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, So we do not lose heart, even though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. How does Paul survive suffering? He's not looking at the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. How does Asaph start rejoicing? He starts remembering the unseen things. And I gotta pause here for a moment and say, this is only true for those who are united by faith to Jesus Christ. Um, it, it's possible that this, this discouragement over the state of things in the world could be an evidence of, of a bigger issue. And so it's, it's always a good idea to ask ourselves, you know, am I certain of my fate? Am I certain of where I will be when I die? Am I certain that the Lord will take me away to glory? And, and that the free offer of the gospel is that if we will trust in Jesus Christ by faith, if we will turn to him and commit ourselves to him by faith, trusting that his death and his burial and his resurrection on the cross will be sufficient for our sins, then we are justified by faith, we are forgiven, and we can be confident of that. 
You know, Paul in Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we are having peace with God. And, and so Asaph has this confidence. You know, and this confidence is central. This, this answer to the problem of evil only makes sense for those who know where they stand with God. Because um, the answer is basically, after this life, there's another life, and all accounts get settled there. That's half the answer. The other half the answer is, and in this life now, you can be having peace with God. In this life now, he can uphold you and guide you and be your portion. Um, remember to keep eternity in view. Final point. The fight of faith is the fight to be satisfied in and with God. The fight of faith is the fight to be satisfied in and with God. And that's really the issue of what's tugging on his heart is what will satisfy him. He starts hungering and thirsting for material blessings, hungering and thirsting for material prosperity. He confesses in verse 2 and 3, he was envious of the wicked. Envy, coveting, I want what they have. And by the end of this psalm, he is totally satisfied in God. Totally satisfied. Whom have I, he says, in heaven but you? And on earth there's nothing that I want apart from you. And a satisfaction in God that comes through knowing his son Jesus Christ, that's the only real and sure way to guard our faith, to breed true contentment. Remember in 1 Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. You know, God wants to satisfy you. Jesus is talking about, come unto me and eat my flesh and drink my blood. He's talking about being food, nourishment, satisfaction. The woman at the well Whoever believes in me will have a well of water springing up to eternal life. These are all pictures of satiating desire. And if that's not your experience of God, if, if you believe you know the Lord and yet your heart hungers and thirsts for other things, may I suggest to you, you, you don't know him as you ought. You don't know him as you ought. The fight for faith is a continual fight to, to get our hearts centered on, satisfied in God. And there's so many things this world has to offer that will say, no, 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 come over here. This will satisfy you. There's advertisers that just spend millions of dollars in research and planning to make our hearts discontent, to make me think that I need some new gadget to be happy. And so we need to follow the Apostle Paul's example in Philippians 3, 8 to 11, where he can say, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul says, I count all things as lost for the sake of knowing God and Jesus Christ. Now, I know that may sound like nice words, but that really has got to become the reality of our hearts to anchor us. Otherwise, circumstance will knock us to and fro. And when things are going good, we're happy. When things are going bad, we're unhappy. And we just get tossed around like a cardboard box in the middle of a lake in a windstorm or a styrofoam cup in the ocean. The anchor for our faith that protects us and guards us is a satisfaction in who God is for us and what he has done for us, knowing him. And that's really what we've got to work on and cultivate and develop. 
So I hope, I hope we've been encouraged this morning looking at Asaph's lessons on how to deal with doubts over the success of the wicked, how to shepherd our hearts, to know that on the one hand, if you're wrestling with discouragement and doubts, you're in good company, and that we've been shown a roadmap of how to get out of there, how to fight by faith out of there, to the point where we can praise God, where we can say, he is our treasure. There is nothing we desire apart from him. We're going to now um, transition to um, our offering this morning.